0: Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center, and your host for this episode. Ancient literature is filled with ideas about moral character and a well-lived life. Prudence, piety, self-control, the list goes on. But at their heart, what are the common threads that led the ancients to value these personal qualities? And what role did they play in shaping later thinking about virtues and the self? Our guest today is Christopher Moore, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Classics at the Pennsylvania State University. This year, as a fellow at the Center, Christopher has been working on a project examining the history of the canonical Greek virtue, Sofrasune. And he argues that the ancients understood it not merely as self-control, but as essential to constituting the self. Welcome, Christopher.
1: Well, thanks, Matthew, for having me join you.
0: Christopher, you are a lively and passionate writer with a sharp sense of humor. In your application, you wrote that your book will redeem this Greek virtue from its detractors. You actively dislike its previous mistranslations as temperance or chastity, and even as moderation. And you aren't happy that scholars rank it low on the list of Greek virtues behind justice, wisdom, courage, even piety. So help me out here. Why should I strive to understand, maybe even embody, sofrasune?
1: My concern with those translations, for example, chastity, restraint, and so forth, is that first, it presents as too narrow the range of parts of life in which sofrasune is relevant, as though it's important only when you're feeling lustful or extremely angry or extremely hungry, you know, as though it's a kind of break Against the kind of intense, insane feelings we sometimes have. Now, one might think that much of human life really is your human body just so boiling and bubbling out of your control that the least you could do is put a brake on that. And that, I think, is what we might see in the Christian period in the 19th century during the temperance movement concerning alcohol. What I'm interested in seeing is that what allows for the kind of control of erotic desire, desire for inebriation, and so forth, that mechanism applies much more generally in our human life. And what I'm interested in seeing are the ways that that kind of mechanism is essential to our being people of the sort that we recognize, of our being mature human beings of the sort that we recognize. That is not just in extreme cases, in cases of addiction or whatever but just every day as we're growing up, as we're
0: improving, as friends, as family members, as people in the workforce, as citizens. How did you become interested in this topic? Does it build on previous work you've done, or do you see it as a large unanswered question in your field? You know, I think it's easier to do research when you feel like you have some sympathy for the topic or you
1: feel like, oh, if I could understand this issue, then maybe it will apply to my life. And you know, most of the other virtues seem really hard to ever amount to, you know, actually being just, actually being generous, actually being wise. So it seemed like, well, at least from the conventional perspective, Safra is just like not going crazy at the banquet table. I think I can do that. So one, it's like, oh, low hanging fruit, but it is also connected to this interest that I've long had. And that is the issue of self-knowledge, how Are we to understand and be responsive to this famous saying, know thyself? The Greeks took this as somehow the main thing that you needed to do to know yourself. But at the same time, they were mystified. How am I to do that? And how will I know when I've succeeded? What's interesting is in the Greek context, it's not always been recognized that Sophosune and knowing oneself, seeking to attain self-knowledge, are equated. So somehow, self-rasune, this virtue sometimes I translate as discipline, is the, as it were, moral culmination of self-knowledge. By being disciplined, by working to appreciate which desires I should act on, which desires I should leave aside, which desires I should take as propelling me toward the goals I actually commit myself to, which desires I take to be mm, something just to leave to the side right now. That process of judging between one's desires and, and enabling the ones you identify with, that just is what it is to know oneself. To put it somewhat more simply, what is it we're trying to know when we want to know ourselves? Well, we want to know what we stand for. We want to know what we want to do. And we want to know where those two things meet, where where the desires are that will move us forward to what we
0: think is most valuable in life. Christopher, one of the things I most admire about philosophers is your courage in taking on topics that many other people have worked on before. What to you is fresh about the approach you're bringing? And how is it that you can imagine yourself working in a field in which so many others have come before you? How do you handle that, that mixture of hum- the humility you must feel in the presence of some heavy hitters in the past?
1: Well, philosophy does often seem like it's running in place and the best is maybe standing in place. And it seems as though there's not much progress and that we're always returning to the same old things. But that's like saying, well, when I'm with my friends, we're always talking about the same thing. It's true. We are always talking about the same thing because we didn't figure it out before. Why not? Well, because we're talking about the things that you don't just figure out in one conversation. So questions about the meaning of life, the meaning of death, what the best kind of person to be is, what we need to know about the world in order to be the best kind of person. So those are all questions, which I think, in some sense, in principle, are not answerable in any finite way. There's no equation to find that will then answer them. Had there been an equation, we might have found it, and then we have mathematics, or we have biology. I think the fact that we're still talking about Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Sofrasune. Well, for me, it's indication that we're on the right track, that these are the people who have isolated or identified the questions that are really hard, and they're hard in this paradoxical way. They're so hard that we're only going to be able to address them by talking, you know. Matthew, like you and I are talking. So in some sense, by using the, the easiest route. And what I feel like is a very late entrant into the most marvelous conversation there's been. And of course, for me, it's only part of the conversation. I mean, I mostly am around the ancient philosophers or Greek philosophers, I should say, more specifically. So that's one thing. Now, what is it that is fresh? Well, when it's a study of history, the phenomena of human experience is just so manifold, it's so dense. And so now, actually, the real reason is connected to what I just said about a conversation and connected to historiography, which is that certain issues become of primary interest to people. And then that sets the terms of the debate. So, for example, Anyone who's taken an ancient philosophy class studied Plato and has heard about the forms, you know, the universal immaterial things that are definitive of the world in the Platonic theory. For much of the 19th and 20th century, that was a thing that the most excited participants in the ancient philosophy conversation were talking about. And with anything, when there's a hot center, you can't just talk about everything to an equal extent. So, Though I believe that self-knowledge is really important, and people would admit that it's important, that just hasn't been where the focus of conversation has been for these reasons connected to, I want to be talking about what other people are talking about. My hope, of course, is that in my very little way, I can nudge the conversation toward that, especially by pulling in interlocutors that have been talking about something else and say, you know, you're in effect already talking about. Self knowledge or software or discipline. So, there the
0: freshness is in bridging conversations, I suppose. Christopher, one of my favorite activities at the center is walking around and looking at the piles of books that scholars have ordered and sometimes end up stacked up near your door. And I imagine that your office is filled with books at this moment. You've been a great consumer of the library's facilities this year. And I wonder, is there anything that you've added, something that is new, or perhaps a, a story or a perspective you didn't have? That you have gained during your year at the center on your topic? Just as I was preparing to move down to North Carolina, I was thinking
1: about ways to find other researchers of the fifth century Greek intellectual tradition who wanted to talk about recent articles, about their own work, et cetera. So I started a a Zoom group, uh, which we call SPIN, on sophists and public intellectuals. I would be trying to come up with new topics for us to discuss. And so I would just request whatever new books seem to be on some interesting thing. There would be a a book on a story about the competition between Homer and Hesiod that I knew effectively nothing about. There would be some stories about Anaxagoras, who seems to have been the first person to explain the eclipse of the sun as, uh, as not something we should be superstitious about, but something we can use to understand the nature of the sun and the moon. And so forth. So, I could request those books. And this has been important for me as someone who's trained as a philosopher and is connected to one of the excellent things about the National Humanities Center. And it is that the questions that I have mostly known through the study of philosophy and sophistry exist and are productive in ancient music, in ancient literature, in ancient astronomy in ancient religious practice. And so by having the super easy access to whatever new books are coming out, having the time to you know have these Zoom seminars with people working on related topics across the, the continent, I, I've been able to have a, a much richer, let's say, interdisciplinary perspective on the time, the fifth century and the fourth century that has occupied me for so long. So to have had this time to be exposed, as it were, for the first time, even in the middle of my career, to the wide range of other humanistic and scientific disciplines that bear upon my
0: work has been wonderful. You know, Christopher, I have greatly enjoyed our conversations over lunches. You speak passionately about the role of philosophy in the university, and for that matter, in society as a whole. What do you think accounts for this enduring attraction of ancient philosophy in our modern world? The ancient philosophers,
1: Socrates, Anaxagoras, Gorgias, whomever, they were not seeing themselves as doing philosophy, as experts in a closed discipline. They were seeing themselves as trying to talk to one another, to other citizens, to other Greeks, to people beyond the Greek world, in ways that were more productive, that seemed actually to get at what was important, in particular going beyond what our assumptions are, going beyond what other people have told us to believe. And we thought, no, that seems true enough. So for them, philosophy, sure, was rigorous and sure was theoretical and often went quite beyond commonplace observations, but it was justified by and was to return to the ways we live our lives in a sense, everyday fashion And in extremis, when really bad things or really good things occur. Now, this lesson has not lost on everybody in the history of philosophy, even some people in contemporary philosophy. But I think that those who are writing philosophy in the ancient period were so sensitive to this protreptic or exhortative function of philosophy. That is, people saying, join us in this mode of conversation about what is important. It might take a little while to get used to it, but join us. It's doing what you already want to do, and it will help you find things you didn't know you want to do that you, in fact, do want to do. And and so I find these texts, sure, very distant, quite narrow, perhaps, with respect to some of the social questions we have today. I find these texts still to be meant for people like us who are not yet technical experts in knowing how to live. We're not yet technical experts in understanding what we need to know to make good decisions. So I think that the ancient philosophical texts are really pitched at the level of us and are in a kind of network so that we can understand how they're talking with each other. They're trying to refine these very ideas of exhortation, the good life, the nature of philosophy. And they don't yet have anything to take for granted. They don't have a history of the discipline. They don't yet have university departments. They don't yet have a canon of texts. So from the perspective of teaching students, talking to friends, myself getting into new areas, I, I don't feel the kind of high barrier to entry that I see in many other
0: disciplines. What a wonderful summary of the purpose of a discipline and for that matter of of a life to, to know thyself and to seek out that information. Thank you, Christopher Moore, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Classics at the Pennsylvania State University and fellow at the National Humanities Center. And thank you ladies and gentlemen for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.